Welcome to the Jersey Heritage Podcast, where we give you access to fascinating historic sites and collections that are not generally open to the public. Today, we're stepping back in time to the Cold War years to visit the nuclear bomb-proof bunker where Jersey's government would have coordinated the emergency response to a nuclear attack or accident. This is the site where experts would have gathered to analyse weather reports, gather scientific data and coordinate efforts across the UK and Europe. And this is where vital information and instructions would have been broadcast to islanders in the event of a nuclear emergency. So we just turned off the main road in the north of St Helier and suddenly we're in a quiet residential area and there's this huge German bunker in front of us. It's painted in stripes of black, white and pale grey. It's a story or two high and covered in barbed wire over the roof. And for many people, I'm sure they don't even know it exists. And for the local residents, I'm sure they wonder what's inside. So we're going to get a chance to look around today. So there's a huge steel door here at the entrance. We're just going to step down and then we can walk through the lobby area where there's this great big heavy metal door. So I'm here in the bunker with Mary Osmond, who was one of the people who worked here during the Cold War years. Um, we're standing in the lobby area. Could you just tell us a bit about what happened here when you arrived? Yes, um, we always had to sign in because obviously we were a team and the door was shut. Most of the people that came here, in fact, I think all of the people that came here were employed by the States of Jersey. I was at Jersey Telecoms um, as a, a switchboard operator. Other people at the Met Office and various different places. So you'd all meet up. We didn't know each other. So the first time you ever came, it was a bit sort of daunting, really, especially when I came in here. I thought, wow, because I used to live in a little house just in Springfield Crescent, so it was quite funny for me. So I'd seen the bunker, but I'd never been in it. So when that big door opened and I saw the size of the door, I thought, wow, this is, this is something, you know. And it's hard to imagine what it's like down here. Well, we've just come into the main communication room in the bunker, it's a, a really impressive room, really high ceilings, brightly lit. The walls are covered with blackboards and maps with all kinds of different information and phone numbers and charts, plotting things. We've got uh, a whole series of tables in the centre of the room with chairs around. So I think this is where a lot of the work was, um, was going on when the, um, when the bunker was used for training exercises and also for meetings. And then behind me, there are also some communications desks as well. So Mary, what was your first impression when you came here to work in the bunker? I thought, wow, <laughs> what does all that mean? Because, you know, people don't understand about radiation fallout and all that sort of thing. I soon learned. Yeah, could you tell um, us a bit about your specific role and where you were sitting? Yeah, so I would normally be in the corner because of the telephone. That, that was my role. So I would be answering phones. Now, you might not do anything for two or three hours you might just be sitting there waiting because the scenario hadn't kicked off, should we say. So as soon as there's a threat, then everything starts moving. So my role was actually just to take the messages, whatever was given to me, usually a grid reference. So it would be from, and it might be Guernsey, it might be Wren. Um, so it'd be from Wren to, might be scientific advisor, might be Metman or whatever. 
Um, so you just write down the message you're given and then hand it over. So um, you always use the phonetic alphabet. That was always a given. Um, and they would always use it as well to you. The time, you'd always put the time very clearly. 24-hour clock, we used to call it the Zulu clock. I don't know if you've heard that expression. 12 o'clock is Zulu um, and anything after that. So 12 o'clock, 13, 14, 15, that way around. So you'd have 14, 20, not 20 past two. So you had to really think quickly on your feet because you're scribbling this down as they're saying it. And you can't make mistakes. It's got, you know, it's got to be accurate. Um, when we did our meetings, the evening meetings, it was always geared towards an, an exercise. I can't remember how often we did it through the year, but certainly I was involved in half a dozen in the few years that I did it. Um, so we'd be in this big room, which is set out like a, well, like a military planning room, really, isn't it? And so in the corner, um, we'd have telephones, tannoy, and this room would be full of people with the scientific knowledge, shall we say. Now, I didn't do an overnight exercise, but there were uh, 24-hour exercises. I only did a 12-hour, which was usually 8 in the morning, half 7, 8 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock in the evening, didn't always go on till eight o'clock in the evening because things were resolved or whatever. Um, and depending on how well it went, you know, you might be here longer. So I just found it always very, very interesting. Very glad to get out at the end of the day because it's quite claustrophobic in here and it can get quite hot um, and quite cold. So in the winter it would be freezing, the summer it would be warm, as it is with all bunkers. Um, but you felt that you'd done something that might be used for future dates, but you hope it never would be, you know, and as it turned out, it never was. So, um, but um, yeah, it was a very, very interesting time. Very interesting time. So I'm joined now by Paul Lister, who was a scientific advisor when the bunker was operational. We're here in the storeroom in the bunker. Could you just tell us a bit about what we're seeing on the shelves here? Yes, of course. Um... One thing you can see in front of you probably is a, is a gas mask. That's one of many that we would have had in here. Strictly speaking, though, it's not a gas mask. It's a mask to protect against radiation. There's gamma radiation, which is, as it sounds, radiation. There's also particulate radiation, alpha and beta particles. And those masks are designed to protect against those. Okay. We also have in here uh, uh, sort of decontaminated suits we can wear to go outside with. So if it were to be contaminated outside, we can go outside with protection and then be, you know, be protected from the radiation and the particles. However, when you come back into the building, you'll have noticed there are some showers. Those showers are there to de particularly to decontaminate people from being outside. And how long could you go outside potentially? It depends. It depends. It depends upon the dose of you know the amount of radiation there is outside. But the people would be carrying uh, dosimeters and instruments to read the amount of radiation that's there. So it depends. It's horses for horses, really. Um, and were there some Geiger counters I saw on the we shelf? We have Geiger there? counters in here, yeah, because people going outside would need to know what they were being sort of presented with, and so we'd be able to measure the sort of radiation that's around them. Okay, should we move on to have a look at the rest of the bunker? Certainly. Uh, so we're here in the um, broadcast studio in the bunker. Could you tell us a bit about the role of this space? Yes, of course. I mean, our, our principal role was to determine whether there's a danger outside radiation particularly. And so was found to be radiation, then we would have to tell the public. 
So the principal purpose of this, this room, is this studio, was to broadcast on local radio warnings to the local population, telling them that there is radiation outside. It's important to realise when you're doing that, that people, they can't see the radiation, they can't taste it, they can't smell it. You can't have any evidence of it at all. So the purpose of this place is to broadcast to the, to the public and say there is a danger outside. Don't go outside. So we've moved into the living accommodation in the bunker. So potentially in a real life situation, you might have been locked down here for weeks. Yes. It looks pretty basic, the accommodation. Can you um, tell us a bit more about where we're standing? Yeah, well, as you rightly say, it is pretty basic. However, it, it served its purpose. It, we, we have to be, or had to be completely self-contained. We had to be locked away. So we were behind the big steel door, tucked away in here for perhaps weeks at a time. So therefore, to survive down here, we needed somewhere to cook. We have a galley, a kitchen. We have an eating area or a rest area. And also in here, as we say, we have the, the bunk area. There's 12, 12 bunks and there's also a, a wash area there behind you. So how many people might have been down here in the bunker at one time? It's difficult to say really. I would estimate maybe eight or ten people. You know, and that's for a long time. That's mm. eight or ten people to stay here. You know, not to go out and come back again the following day. You know, they're, they're out out of circulation for the duration so it would be it would be on like a shift basis mm. but we'd be working 24 hours a day because you know things are happening 24 hours a day so we had to be able to to respond and alert people if necessary Um, so, Paul, one of your roles was plume plotting, I understand. Yes. Could you tell us a bit more about this large map that we're standing in front yep, of? Yeah, of course. Uh, it's quite a large-scale map. Jersey in, in the centre of it. And uh, on, our, on the right-hand side of the map, on the eastern side of the map, is the Cotentin uh, Peninsula. Um, bearing in mind that Jersey, we don't think, was a target, however, places in France to the west of us potentially were. Places like Brest, for example. And with the prevailing winds, were there to be a burst over or near Brest, the winds would have probably brought any contamination from there towards us. So our role here was to measure, was to plot that contamination, see if it arrives here, and then if it does arrive here, then we do our next job, which we've seen before, was to tell the people that there's danger outside. Yeah, so this was a really critical... It's a, I think that uh, maybe I'm biased because I did the job, but I, I think it's partly the hub of the whole thing. It's knowing what's happening, where, how it's going to affect us, and then what we need to do to protect the public. I'm here in the bunker with um, Paul Patterson, who is a scientific advisor when the bunker was operational. Yes, the role of the scientific advisor was a voluntary one and uh, a few of us who volunteered primarily from scientific mathematical backgrounds um, were trained, um, significant training in, in actual fact by the Ministry of Defence um, over in the UK mostly um, and our role was primarily to 
be here to advise government and the population on the situation leading up to and potentially post um, World War III, a global exchange of nuclear weapons. So we needed to, to understand an awful lot about the behaviour of a, uh, a nuclear bomb, the radiation fallout, how it was likely to present itself, and then plot all of the bombs that, that were coming in, measure their heights, um, and then post-strike um, issue all clears in a, in, in a, a manner that was as safe as possible. Um, and we would regularly exercise uh, up to 24 hours at a time in real time. And in those days, everyone used to play. We used to have the French in, we used to have the UK people in. And at times it was sort of, is it real? You, you, you got that feeling that it, the play was so realistic, you worried that it was really going to happen. And when you're locked down in here, for goodness alone how many days you could start to imagine how difficult that would be and we often ask ourselves the question we had families etc we would be coming down the bunker if the balloon went up but our families wouldn't we often ask that question so saturday the 26th of april 1986 one, twenty-three, forty hours. Isn't that odd? One, two, three, four. Number four reactor at Chernobyl. Up she went. We were alerted very quickly that there was some very abnormal radiation at a high level. And it looked to us as if the actual weapons had started to be exchanged. I had a one-month-old boy at home, and I said to my wife, this looks bad. And she said, Paul, go. That's what you're trained to do. So down we came, um, opened it all up, shut all the doors, did all the things we've been trained to do. And because the training was so significant and repetitive, we were able to go straight into that mode and leave our family thoughts behind us. It was real, it was focused. The Russians, of course, were being extremely economic with the actuality at that time, and uh, it took the Ukrainian authorities quite some time before they actually reported what had actually happened. Uh, by which time, of course, um, the whole of the Chernobyl area was extremely contaminated. There was some amazing heroism stories that, that, that were coming out of scientists that knew they were going to give themselves a lethal dose but they still went so that was in hindsight exciting um, sobering that it was 34 years ago now that that that, that happened and for a time after that it, 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 it really did focus government's attention on the importance of having a warning and monitoring service and many people throughout the country operating in roles very similar to those that we had here in Jersey. With modern technology, of course, um, the 
thawing of relations between East and West, um, slowly but surely, the, the infrastructure was dismantled. And the thing that I smile about, re recalling last year's tours that we did, with the amount of people, particularly people who lived in the area of here, in Trinity Gardens, he had absolutely no idea this place existed. <laughs> it's big enough, but um, we did have fun as well. It was a bit Dad's army, of course it was. Um, I used to take the jokes at it, but by heavens, when we had the Chernobyl incident, it showed that we weren't Dad's army at all. We actually knew what we were doing. We hope you've enjoyed this Jersey Heritage podcast. Further podcasts can be downloaded from the Jersey Heritage website or your usual podcast provider.